0: Gresham College presents From Sail to Steam London's Role in a Shipbuilding Revolution by Elliot Wragge. The Thames today obviously is a fairly quiet place. Uh, the odd clipper going by, the odd pleasure boat, but obviously back in the past it was uh, the greatest port in the world. 1720, Daniel Defoe uh, counted in one day 2,000 seagoing vessels, so not barges, not fishing boats, not lighters, not queries, uh, in one day in the Pool of London. By 1800, it was said that you could cross the river without getting your feet wet. Um, and this goes on into the post-war period until you get containerisation and everything just falls out apart overnight. Um, this is a very well-known story. What's less well-known is, is London's role in shipbuilding and as a shipbuilding centre. And I hope as we go on, you'll see just how important London's role in that was. And in particular, in that period, of the nineteenth century, we get massive changes in shipbuilding technology. The story starts of sorts of sorts of starts off with the Saxons, and I may do a little overlap with what Gustav talked about last week. But Alfred the Great, there he is, sort of. Um, <laughs> he. He's you know, acknowledged as the sort of founder of the English Navy. He builds ships which are larger and, and uh, faster than the, the Danish ships, a combination of the, sort of, uh, the Danish uh, longships and the Frisian um, trading ships. And as use, uh, using his fleet along with his army, of course, he recovers London. And his successors, uh, Edward the Elder, Athelstan, Edgar... Uh, maintain and build on this fleet and they use it very much actually a bit like the Victorians do in a sort of gunboat diplomacy kind of way. So they intervene um, on behalf of Louis, King of the France, they intervene on Henry the Fowler, the Duke of Saxony, and they establish a sort of effective suzerainty over the rest of the British Isles through their sea power, its soft power. Edgar, that's a coin of Edgars there, is famously rowed in state by the sub-kings of the Western Isles, Hebrides, Man, etc. And so they're using this, this fleet and, and maintaining this fleet as a, an instrument of power policy. What does this mean for London? Well, London is the largest town in the country by the 11th century, So it's probably the best place to supply a large fleet like this. And indeed, documentary sources suggest that certainly when the fleet is operating off the south and east coasts, then London is where it's being supplied from. A little bit of archaeological evidence exists. We have reused um, ships' timbers found in waterfront structures behind the river wall from this period, and also, significantly, um, a strip of roves, which are the washer's, they used when they drove the nails in between the planks, clenched them over, but they were unused. So at the very least, we're looking at a ship repair capacity. Not only that, there is place name evidence. Uh, Fish Street Hill, Timber Hithe, before the medieval bridge of 1016, is upstream of the bridge. After the bridge, it moves downstream, both those place names. It's significant. The bridge is a defensive structure to stop ships those place names move below the defensive structure. So it looks, you know, lots of circumstantial evidence suggests that London was a big shipbuilding place at this time. And it would be mad to consider it otherwise, really, given its size and significance. It all goes a bit wrong. William the Conqueror, our friend, he uh, built his fleet over in France in Normandy. And, uh, and then allegedly waits three uh, months for the wind to change. These ships can move quite happily unless the winds, you know, you've got over about sixty percent of wind direction. These will cross the channel. He waits for three months. The prevailing winds are westerlies. These things can move quite happily across the channel in a westerly. Strangely enough, on the eighth of September, ten sixty-six, the uh, Saxon fleet has to return to London to resupply. All of a sudden, the wind has changed. <laughs> Up comes William, the rest is history. Um, and the, 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 there's a massive difference between how Saxon, the Saxon monarchs view Sipa and how the later Norman Plantagenet monarchs do. They like building castles. Incredibly expensive, don't move very far, <laughs> um, not a very flexible power tool. Um, so it's, it's, it's a total difference, and, and, and England becomes, sort of a maritime power, becomes a continental military power. And they use ships, and ships are changing. Um, we're moving from sort of long ships to things like uh, cogs. And if, effectively, they do use ships from time to time. They use them to supply their very slow-moving, plodding armies. Um, they don't use them as a sort of tool of power, a strategic weapon in the way the Saxons did. Obviously, at things like the Battle of Slews, um, they're taking up ships from trade, they're adding forecastles castles after castles, and we know at least 20 London ships fought at that battle in 1341, I believe. Um, And by the end of the medieval period, this is, ships are getting really, really large. This is Henry V's great ship, or a computer-generated image of it, the uh, Grasse Dieu of 1418. Uh, a massive carrack of war. We know the dimensions because underneath here, her bones lie in the Hamble estuary. She was hit by lightning and, and burnt. So we know at this period, that's the Grastia, same size as Victory. So they're building very, very big ships. Grastia is built in Southampton, but is uh, fitted out in London. And we know also that uh, sometimes they build galleys, small, ord warships as well, and we know from documentary evidence that these have uh, overwintered on the Greenwich marches. Uh, equally, at the same time, you have ribbon developments along the river in Wapping, Limehouse, Blackwall on the north bank, Bermondsey and Rotherhithe on the south bank. Presumably, these are all to do with shipbuilding and ship supply. Henry VII um, Creates seems to start the, the first Royal Dockyard in Portsmouth in the last decade of the 15th century. His son, uh, Henry VIII, uh, starts up the two Royal Dockyards in London, Woolwich Dockyard and Deptford Royal Dockyard, in about 1514. And what we see here, I mean, what was interesting, putting this talk together, and it sort of crystallised things in my mind that have been going on for some time. We start, I started off thinking about the 19th century technological revolution, and then I realised London was actually at the forefront, it seemed, of just about every technological development that we can see. So Henry, Henry VIII's great ship, the Henri Grasse is built at Woolwich Dockyard. Interesting story about this. Henry is a bit of a... You know, crazy Renaissance prince, and he's uh, all about making himself look cool. So him and uh, James IV of Scotland and Francis I of France have a big rivalry. And so they go into uh, a kind of Renaissance naval version of Pimp My Ride. <laughs> who's, who's got the best ship? Um, this is Henry's version. Uh, James IV, his great ship, the Michael, was also quite cool. Uh, Francis I, well... His ship, um, it had um, a chapel, a tennis court, and I kid you not, a windmill. I think he won the game. The Venetian ambassador, who his account is where we know all this, he said, I don't think this ship will go to sea. I don't think it did. But anyway, this is, this is the, 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 the point here is to... In 1514, Henry's biggest ship is built in London. His biggest, his best ship is built in London. And I think we start, we'll start to see prototype vessels and the, the, the greatest vessels being built in London, uh, such as the Ark Royal of 1587, a uh, race built galleon, very different to the Henri Grassadier. This is a, a gun armed warship, this is a ship sinking machine. And it's not significantly, she's not built in a royal dockyard, she's built in private yards. And again, we will see that the private yards are just as important as the royal yards, particularly in time of war, because in times of peace, most of the the Navy Royal, as it is now and the Royal Navy as it becomes, is actually laid up in reserve. So the first parts of war, the royal yards are desperately trying to get the ships in reserve to sea. The private yards have to take up the slack. And of course, at this period, there's a lot of interchange between what is And a royal ship, what is a private ship? Ark Royal starts off as the Ark Rally, is then bought by the Crown. Things shift about. Into the 17th century, James I's great ship, the Prince Royal, uh, again, slightly different design, is built at Woolwich Dockyard. This is his prestige ship. And then Charles I, his son, his spectacular sovereign of the seas, again is built in London at Woolwich Dockyard. All the big ones seem to be Wulich, uh, built in Woolwich Dockyard. Uh, Woolwich Dockyard, I beg your pardon. The smaller ones uh, seem to be predominantly built at Deptford. Deptford in the 16th century is known as the cradle of the Royal Navy, and I should have said that about over 30 London ships took part in the Armada campaign. But here, this is the greatest ship of the age, and she's built in London. The first of what we would now consider to be uh, first-rate. Uh, three-decked ship of the line. Extraordinary vessel. The gilding alone, the decoration, cost 10% of the ship. This was Charles I's real attempt to show I'm the boss. And sovereign of the seas, sovereign of the land, it all ended rather well for him. (laughs) Um, But what's interesting as well is the the figurehead of, of sovereign of the seas actually depicts King Edgar, old Saxon King Edgar, Uh, Accepting homage from the kings of the sort of Irish Sea. So there's a common theme running through. Followed by Cromwell's great ship, the Naseby, again at Woolwich Dockyard. Everyone is building their big statement ships in London. Cromwell's figurehead shows Cromwell trampling on the English, the Irish, uh, the Scots, and the French. Sorry, not the English, the Irish, the Scots, and the French. Slightly different connotations on maritime power and military power. Into the 18th century, Deptford again has never been building the biggest ships. By now Woolwich isn't either. It seems that the Thames is silting up. The larger ships are being built predominantly down-channel. Places like Chatham, Sheerness, for example. And we started to look at the the, the, the amount of ships that were being built in London in this period and suddenly realised there were an awful lot of familiar names there. So we thought we'd look at Nelson's uh, fleets in his three great battles, the, uh, the Nile, Copenhagen and Trafalgar, and just see how many were built in London on the Thames. So this is the Nile, 1798, four in the Royal Dockyards in London, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven in the private dockyards in London, two more, Uh, In the Lower Thames, only one is not a Thames-built ship. At Copenhagen, two in the Royal Dockyards, another four in London's private yards, all but two Thames-built. Trafalgar, uh, four in the Royal Dockyards, another five in the London private yards, another load in uh, in the Lower Thames yards, if you take out the fact that two of these are French prizes, the proportion rises to 68%. Cumulatively, over those three battles, 52% of Nelson's ships are built in London. And if you add the lower Thames Yards and the Medway, 75% of his battle fleet is built on the Thames. It's quite astonishing. We think of Portsmouth and Plymouth and places like that as the home of the Royal Navy. It's not, they're not. But they're not just building warships, obviously, in the medieval period. In the 16th century, there's a great crossover between uh, am I a pirate today, am I a fisherman tomorrow, or a trader yesterday? But by the 18th century, obviously, things are a lot clearer. But uh, the London yards are also churning out um, masses of merchantmen. This is the yard at Blackwall. In, in the 18th, late 18th century, the largest uh, yard in the country, and quite possibly the largest, largest yard in the world, by extension. And they were producing an awful lot of East Indiamen and also, uh, you know, normal, smaller uh, barks and traders, as were all the other London private yards. The first technological revolution of the 19th century is quite an um, invisible one. It's all about the framing of the ships internally. Um, and uh, Robert Seppings, who is Surveyor of the Navy from, uh, from 1813, uh, introduces this diagonal framing. Here, this is kind of how ships were built before, so you have internal riders along here to stiffen the ship. He builds in these internal diagonal frames, which we've found evidence of from uh, a structure at Charlton foreshore of the Duke of Wellington, a much later ship. Um, these timbers here, which show this, how they fit on the keel. It's a very invisible revolution, but it makes ships much stiffer, he combines it also, this may not be too visible, with longitudinal diagonal framing as well. What this means is all of a sudden, uh, you can make wooden ships much longer, or relatively longer. You saw before that the grass deer of 1418 was about the same size as the Victory. This pushes it a bit further. And possibly Steppings' work is based on uh, Gabriel Snodgrass, who is one of the main shipwrights for the East India Company at Blackwall. More work needs to be done, as ever. So, the main and most visible initial revolution of the 19th century is obviously uh, the rise of steam. Steam power by this period, around 1800s, has been used for about 100 years, uh, pumping water out of mines and things. And of the of the turn of the 18th century, people start to re- think, how do we apply this? Steve is wonderful pair to other applications. Uh, in 1788, uh, Robert Burns is known to have uh, taken a little trip on a lake in a paddle boat. The French are playing around with things. Um, William Symington produces a, a vessel up in Scotland the, for Charlotte Dundas to ply on the 4th Clyde Canal, but the directors took fright that the wash would uh, tear the banks down. In 1807, on the Hudson River... In North America, they started to have steamships, small steam paddlers, uh, operating a service. And shortly afterwards, in 1812, Henry Bell uh, produced the Comet. There's the Comet there. And she started a regular service on the Clyde. So... what's happening in London? It's the greatest shipbuilding centre in the world. Um, Our friends up north, are embracing this new technology. Uh, Our friends across the uh, Atlantic are embracing this new technology. Um, Our friends across the Channel are embracing this technology. What are we doing here in London? Initially, not a lot with the ships, but we're doing an awful lot with the engines. London in uh, this period is as much in the forefront of the Industrial Revolution as anywhere in the country. And there are a number of marine engineers, uh, particularly Maudsley in Lambeth, Penn in Greenwich, Rennie at Millwall, and so at first they're providing engines, so the Great Western, Brunel's first nautical venture, launched in Bristol, a wooden paddle steamer, has a London engine. Um, London comes back. Uh, a number of developments, including uh, Seward and Capel of Millwall, they invent condensers so, you can uh, turn salt water into fresh water, it doesn't corrode the boilers. And the most obvious one is, um, is this here uh, the Archimedes of 1838. Paddle steamers, Great Western is a successful boat, it's a great paddle steamer, happily, happily flies across the Atlantic. But I think this uh, image demonstrates the problems you have with paddles, uh, paddle wheels in uh, anything approaching a rough sea. The paddle wheel would be there. So here on the starboard side, it'll be out of the water, not doing anything, spinning helplessly in the air. On the port side, it'll be totally submerged. So the bottom half of the propeller will be trying to push the ship forward. The top half will be trying to push it back. So paddle steamers are great on lakes, on rivers. Not very good in this. And here at London, um, comes to the fore. Uh, Francis Pettit Smith... Uh, along with Samuel Ericsson in America, who's also been working with Screw Propulsion, produces um, the Archimedes of 1838, built in Ratcliffe in London. Um, The Navy uh, uh, slowly started to embrace the steam revolution. They they order their first steam tug in 1822 uh, from Deptford Dockyard and their first armed steamer in 1830. For the Navy, the, uh, there were even more disadvantages for paddle steamers. You can only mount a limited armament above the waterline because the paddle boxes get in the way. And also, the engine spaces are above the waterline. They're very vulnerable. So the Admiralty weren't dead keen on, uh, on paddle steamers. They instituted a series of trials in uh, 1845 between the, the Rattler, a screw sloop, and the Electo, a paddle sloop in which the electo proved superior and is here shown towing the rattler backwards at a, a, a slow pace. But the admiralty is, is, is very much accused in the 19th century or traditionally as of being very backward-looking. They're not. They just want to be sure of what's going on. And they're always conscious that Britain has much greater shipbuilding capacity and much greater technological capability than anyone else in the world. So if something unusual crops up, they know they can deal with it if they have to. That's what they told themselves anyway. Um, Woolwich, by this time, Woolwich Dockyard had become known as the, the home of the steam navy. It was becoming much more of a specialist marine engineering place and not surprisingly, given all the London... Uh, steam and marine engineers uh, that were located so close. Deptford in this period has sort of almost been mothballed from about 1830s, has a brief resurgence in the 18, late 1840s, late 1850s. But Woolwich becomes known as the home of the steam navy. And not surprisingly, the first line of steam line of battleship designed as such for the Royal Navy is launched at Woolwich Dockyard in 1852. Uh, this is one of her close sisters. This is the Edgar. Um, again, along with... We've got a bit of Edgar, possibly, along with either the Anson or the Hannibal. All Deptford or Woolwich launched ships in the 1850s, and they comprised part of this structure, which was a wharf at a ship-breaking site in Charlton, uh, along with tip, uh, timbers from this ship, the Duke of Wellington, which, on her launch was the largest warship in the world. She's launched in Pembroke Dock, too big to be launched in the Royal Dockyards in London. Duke of Wellington was designed as a, a first-rate ship of the line. On the stock, she was cut in half, and a steam engine was inserted, and then she was kind of stitched back together. It didn't work too well, oddly enough. <laughs> Uh, she was the flagship of Sir Charles Napier in the Baltic uh, campaign in the Crimean War and, and basically shook herself apart. Spent the rest of time in harbour as an accommodation ship. But anyway, you know, this is the sort of thing they're playing about with at this time. Everything's new. Things are whizzing along. Things are becoming obsolete before you even launch the ship. Um, Talked about the structural uh, revolution, the changes brought about by Seppings and, and uh, Seppings work. This is the Orlando. this is the largest frigate ever built for the uh, Royal Navy, along with her sister, uh, the Mersey, about 300 foot uh, in length. Uh, again, both London, uh, London engineered, both have London engines in them. But this is now approaching the very, very limits of what you can do with a wooden hull. Uh, a ship in a seaway faces uh, two very large stresses because as you're going along you're moving between wave troughs and wave peaks. So what you have is when you're between peaks you, the hull wants to sag, when you're between troughs and the peak is underneath the centre of your hull, uh, the, the hull wants to uh, hog, as, as, as the, the term is, it's sagging and hogging. And there's only a limit that timber, you know, a limit to this that timber will stand. Not only that, but the addition of screw propulsion um, adds extra stresses to the hull. Not only if you chop a thing in half and drop an engine in, and you know, even if you build it deliberately, you're adding extra stresses to a wooden hull. The vibration alone is going to be significant. And you'll see here, this is, this is a schematic of the battleship Ajax, an over-1850s battleship. And you've got here upright for taking thrust of shaft. So before, with a sailing ship, you'd have three masts or even more. The stresses, the motive power, would be delivered along the entire hull. Here, it's all going through there, just that little spot. So it's putting massive stress just on that part of the ship. How do we solve this? You build in iron, basically. Um, the, the, the other problem, of course, with wool at this period—wood, uh, I beg your pardon—wool. We don't build ships out of wool. Um, is the Napoleonic Wars have uh, basically used up virtually all the good shipbuilding timber in, in Britain? We built so many wooden ships. Timber is really, really becoming scarce and expensive. At the same time, iron is becoming very cheap and very plentiful. In 1830, Britain is producing 700,000 tonnes of uh, pig iron. Nine years later, it has more than doubled to 1,700,000 tonnes. We, we are now into the real Iron Age. Don't know what John Cotton was talking about the other <laughs> week. <laughs> Don't tell him I said that. <laughs> and so is, how is London involved with this iron ship-building revolution? Well, obviously, it's, it's going to be involved. This is the first iron... Uh, iron shipped across the channel. This is the Aran Manby of 1821. Uh, Built in sections in Tipton in the West Midlands, transported down to London and assembled at Rotherhithe. So the first iron shipped across the channel is assembled in Rotherhithe. But this is basically like a pleasure steamer, a river steamer. And as you can see, it's uh, basically a a river boat moving from Paris to La Havre. Brunel, now it sort of starts to take more of a central role and the Archimedes, Francis Pettit Smith's ship, Brunel was very interested in and he studied it quite, in quite detail and um, he drew the right conclusions. What you needed was not just a screw propulsion but you needed an iron hole and once you're building an iron you can make it as strong as you like. Those, those limitations of wooden shipbuilding are out the window. So he builds Great Britain, wonderful vessel, one of the most important vessels ever built, an iron-hulled screw steamer in Bristol, the largest ship of the day. And he neatly solves these problems which had been bedeviling the earlier uh, shipwrights and marine engineers. Great and large as Great Britain is, she was dwarfed by his next nautical venture, a ship so gigantic, so advanced, so ahead of its time, so conceptually bonkers <laughs> that only one place could build it. Brunel chooses London to build his Great Eastern. The concept is, is you build a ship which can, take, uh, can carry enough coal to take you all the way from Britain to Australia without coaling. and In those days, a very low performance Engines, you're looking at about 10,000 tonnes worth of coal. So you need an, a gigantic vessel. Great Britain, she's big, th- just over 300 feet long. This one, almost 700 feet long. Uh, and Great Eastern is not even approached in size for another 40 years. It, it's an extraordinary concept. It is, it, it is like a spaceship, of the day. And, and Brunel realises the only place that has the uh, technical know-how, the skilled workforce, the finance uh, to do this is London. And so for two years from 1856 to 1858 slowly this incredible behemoth rises uh, above the London, the Millwall skyline, slowly taking shape. Um, he had to build it sideways, because we've already talked about the, the limitations of attempts. If you tried to launch this thing length, lengthways, you'd end up in Deptford High Street. It's not going to work. So what he does is he comes up with a, a revolutionary idea of a sideways launch, and they, it build, he builds two cradles, there's one of them, with each with its own individual slip. Um, the idea being that it would just slowly slip down into the water on launch and then at high tide just float out, easy as you like. There again, this gives you some idea of the scale of this vessel. This is is astonishing. This is like the eighth wonder of the world, quite possibly the greatest engineering achievement of the Victorian age. So London has been waiting with bated breath for the great day. This thing is... You know, this, is, this is extraordinary. It's like the shard. You know, it's, it's, you know, you can't not see it. And so November 1858 comes, the great day. The directors of the, the company, uh, against Brunel's wishes, invite crowds of sightseers in. You know, it's like a football match. So it's heaving with people around here. And so the, the moment comes. You know, chuck a bottle, I name you, Great Eastern... Nothing happens, and everyone laughs and goes home, and Brunel's not a happy bunny at this point. Over the next three months, he, they have tugs out in the river, trying to pull this thing. They get hydraulic rams in to bash it They're down the slipways. They break the hydraulic rams. He rings up Birmingham, get me bigger hydraulic rams. They didn't have phones, he used email. But the <laughs> Three months bashing, pulling, tugging, smashing, the thing finally takes to the the river. And while Brunel was a marvellous and fantastic visionary and great engineer, he wasn't an archaeologist because we've done work on the slipways. And for all his precision engineering of his slipways, combination of concrete beds, timber runners, and these would have been covered by railway irons, underneath here is prehistoric peat deposits. They're very, very compressible. At its launch, the weight of the Great Eastern is about 10,000 tonnes. And he had meticulously worked out that, through his engineering, there would be you know, a, 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 an equal pressure across all of these slipways. As soon as the thing touched the, the part of the slipway over the foreshore, it just went tilt and wedged. And uh, therein lies his problem. But anyway, the Great Eastern... The great wonder of the world, built in London at the Isle of Dogs at Borough's Wharf, John Scott Russell's yard. And John Scott Russell, for those of you who may be John Scott Russell fans, um, is, is, is a slightly forgotten figure in all of this. But that's another story. So the merchant navy, again, seems to be leading the way with uh, iron shipbuilding. Excuse me. Why aren't the Royal Navy? Playing around with iron as well, they have a couple of iron hold sort of supply ships earlier on in the century. But early iron plate is just didn't stand up to cannon fire. Round shot would punch through it quite easily. Um, it's a little apocryphal the story that the admiralty said, "Well, iron floats; iron ships will sink." They weren't that daft, um, but it, it put them off. And again, there's this notion that they know. Whatever someone else does, they can catch up and overtake with ease in this period because Britain's superiority, technological superiority, is so great. So, of course, the French decide they're going to have a go with iron. And in the Crimean War, they um, create a a series of armoured sort of gunboat ships. This is the the Larve of 1855. And at the Battle of Kimburn, uh, they were able to bombard the Russian fortress with some success and, and with impregnability. They were much larger iron plates, about four inches thick, and it basically worked. This, this led to the French Navy building the first ironclad frigate. This is Le Gloire, I beg your pardon, of 1858. It's a wooden-hulled ship um, encased with an, an iron-armoured belt. And the French uh, and her... Constructor Dupy de Lame are, you know, please just punch. This is it. We're in charge. The Admiralty go, all right, we'll give you that then. And they build Warrior, which is a quantum leap. It's not a wooden ship with an iron uh, armoured belt. It is an iron hulled ship with uh, an iron belt. And just like Brunel, the Navy choose London to build Warrior. Warrior instantly outclasses Gloire by many... Many factors and makes every other warship in the world obsolete. Thames Ironworks, Blackwall. In two years, London has built the most spectacular ships of the 19th century, almost without effort. If you forget about the it, trouble getting Great Eastern into the water. But the building, it just demonstrates the technological capacity. A uh, uh, capability, and the shipbuilding capacity London has in its period. London is quite clearly, you know, globally, the, the world leader in shipbuilding at this period. It's an astonishing feat. And over the next six years or so, of the uh, nine uh, follow-ons to warrior but the Navy order, one, two, three, four, five of those are built on, in London's shipyards. So by 1866... Um, 60% of the Navy's first-class warships are London built, even better than in Nelson's day. London is top dog in shipbuilding, unquestionably at this period. Everything is rosy. No, it's not. It all goes wrong from here, really. Um, Initially, these incredible iron warships had to be built in private yards because the Uh, The Royal Dockers didn't didn't have the the, the technological capability. However, by 1863, the first of these was built at Chatham Dockyard, the Achilles. At the same time, we've already talked about the problems with the Thames uh, in, in terms of size. Now we're starting to get really big ships. It's getting problematic to launch them. Not only that, London itself is expanding exponentially at this time. And so there's less space for the shipyards to expand. The bigger the ship you're building, the bigger the space you need. And London is no, it's too far away from the sources of shipbuilding material by this period. It's all out in Wales and Scotland and where have you. All sorts of factors contributing to a start of a decline of systemic problems, if you like. Um, and then there's a banking collapse in 1866, uh, Overend Gurney and Company, a bank particularly associated with London shipbuilders really hits them hard. Commercial uh, ship owners and operators take fright at this. And from this period on, we don't really get any significant vessel of any size ordered by people like P&O and Cunard from London's yards. Um, the Royal Dockyards in London closed in 1869. This is... One of the last iterations of one of the slipways at Deptford World Duckyard. Um, we know it's one of the last. These are these are Seppings hallmarks. These are particular little fittings that are part of his designs, and they're incorporated in that slipway. Um, but the private yards are starting to do something very, very strange indeed. This is. Uh, a uh, table drawn up by uh, Andrew Chung Han Lee, Lynn from the Mar- Mar- Maritime Museum. I'm, I'm very indebted to him for lending it to me. And he's analysing what Thames Ironworks. works. So, you know, they just built Warrior, top place in the world. And actually, London has a lot of kudos out of Warrior and Great Eastern Broad. But if you look at these numbers, they look all right for 20 years. But if you look at the tonnages... In terms of the warships, you've got 44 ships at 84,000 tonnes. They're averaging about 2,000 tonnes of vessel. The civilian vessels are averaging about 280 tonnes of vessel. So London's yards are now in some kind of weird parallel universe almost, or schizophrenic thing, where they're building either battleships or barges. It's, it's really, really odd. And again, a lot of these foreign naval orders are coming in because people think, yes, we want something like Warrior, yes, we, you know, we know London's the place to be. The Royal Navy ones are much more uh, in response to war scares, they're emergencies. Quick, quick, we need some ships, let's ask London. This is not a sustainable business model. And indeed, slowly now, throughout this period and up towards the end of the century, the, uh, the London shipyards start to close and people like Dudgeon and Samuda, they start to fade out of the picture. Um, Here's Dudgeon, you know, they, they're still building big ships. It's an example of a Dudgeon-built ship. Again, this is a result of a war scare. The Admiralty is much happier uh, building in-house at the Royal Dockyards, and increasingly as well, the, uh, the private yards on the Clyde in Northern Ireland, Birkenhead, because of their advantages with their closeness to materials, their workforce is cheaper, all sorts of things like this. London is only getting the odd order for warships from the Navy. But what London still has is its technological edge, the, the sort of brains, and they start doing, they, they start an entirely new form of vessel. They, the, the first destroyers are built in London. This is the Havoc of 1893, the very first, built at uh, Poplar by Yarrow, and one of the very close follow-ups, the Daring of 1893, was built at Chiswick. For those of you who know Chiswick, you may not imagine Chiswick (laughs) as a shipbuilding centre. It was. It was cutting-edge technology Uh, Thornycroft's Yard back in the late 19th century. And so London, you know, these new thrusters have tried to sort of, okay, we'll we'll not do that, we'll do something different, and we are still dead cutting-edge. Unfortunately... The various factors, particularly cost, and particularly the way London waterfront space, by this point, because the port is getting uh, so big, it it becomes more economical to use the space for warehousing, goods in and out, than having a big space where you're building a ship. So they start to move out. In Thornycroft's case, they had a slight problem. Um, The problem being encapsulated in two words, those being Hammersmith and Bridge. Uh, this is one of the very last uh, destroyers built by Thornycroft, and they used to have to float them down the Thames without the upper works, without the funnels, without the masts. And eventually, as destroyers got too big, you know, couldn't do it. So sadly, by sort of 1907 or so, 1906, 1907, Thornycroft had moved to Southampton, Yarrow had moved to Glasgow. A very brief, look, but almost, if you like, sort of last spurt of the flames of London's technological lead in shipbuilding. Thames Ironworks, soldiers on, manfully to the end. And increasingly, desperately, they bid for big prestige projects because they're still, they're still thinking, well, yeah, Warrior got us loads of business. If we can keep showing we can build these magnificent, brilliant ships... That, you know, we will keep going. And so they, they petitioned Parliament to build the, the Thunderer, an Orion-class super dreadnought of 1911. Thunderer is as good a ship as London has ever built. So, you know, a fine, fine ship. Unfortunately, they put all their eggs in one basket. Everything was, you know, the, the wheels were literally falling off. And in 1912, uh, the banks refused to honour their cheques and Thames Ironworks just goes bump. The only sort of echo of Thames Ironworks now, I'm afraid, is West Ham United. Uh, they, they were the Thames Ironworks works team and are, and are known as the Irons because of it. If you look at their badge, they have shipbuilding hammers on there. So for basically exactly a millennia, London is producing ships it's not only producing ships, it's producing the best ships and the biggest ships. Uh, an extraordinary story that, that really is, is not known. And then a combination of factors. It, it, it leads these technological revolutions. It, might be, it has a slow start with steam. It's certainly at the forefront with iron. Um, but these, te- these technologies its pioneers come back to bite it. And it is a, it is a, a you know, the, the collapse of the Thames shipbuilding industry, or London shipbuilding industry, is, is was, was within the, it is the fruit of the seeds of its own success. But it's a story that should be told more often. Thank you very much.